Hey everybody, it's Brennan. I want to tell you about a special event coming up on October 30th. Flame Tree Press presents Flame Tree Live and Spooky. On October 30th, climb aboard the bone-chilling, fun-filled rides of Flame Tree Press's first annual Creepy Carnival. Featuring readings, panel discussions, live Q&A, special swag, giveaways, and more. Patrick here. Panels will be featuring authors such as Catherine Cavendish, V. Castro, Hunter Shea, Jonathan Jans, Tim Wagner, and more. The event takes place on Friday, October 30th, 2020. It's going to happen at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 8 p.m. British Time. You can expect it to last about five hours. And you can RSVP today at flametr.com slash live spooky. Hope to see you there. Deadhead Space. You can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Ghana, and all other major platforms, which includes Alexa. All you have to do is tell Alexa to play Deadhead Space Podcast for the latest episode every Monday and Thursday. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello. And today we're talking with author, reviewer, and co-host of the popular podcast show, This Is Horror, Bob Pastorella. How's it going, Bob? It's going great. I'm really glad to be here. What got you into horror? Oh, man, I knew this was coming, too. So let's see here. <laughs> it, it's It started at a really, really young age. <clears throat> um, when growing up, uh, we basically grew up in before, you know, we had... A TV, no cable, three channels. But I was very fortunate that they showed a lot of really cool stuff. And so I grew up at a time that a lot, some of the shows were on primetime. So uh, some of the TV shows that I watched that were actually on primetime that, you know, that most people can get now on Blu-ray or DVD were the Night Stalker, which if it wasn't for the Night Stalker, you would not have the X-Files. Uh, and uh, also uh, some of the latter seasons of Night Gallery. Now, some of those seasons of Night Gallery were actually, um, I guess they were right at the point of becoming syndicated. So, uh, But to actually see those on TV and to actually watch them and have nightmares from them kind of informed me that, that even though I liked being scared, that I could possibly you know, have nightmares from this. And there was something about that that attracted me, that made me really kind of, you know, get into the thrill of it. Like, you know, we, I think we were talking with some people the other night and we talked about how it, it's almost like you, 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 you want to see how scared, how scared, you, you know, it's like, how far can you go with being scared? You know, uh, movie wise, we had Saturday afternoons. They showed, you know, what's called like basic, basically like a chiller thriller. You know, they have like this, these movies in the afternoons 
and it has some guy with some weird voice hey, today you know and uh they show like these old hammer films and some of the universal films and and um uh, and then my dad he he, he likes scary stuff you know but he liked it to be kind of authentic uh he didn't like things to be hokey but he 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 liked a good story and he liked stuff that was very intriguing and very unique and different and so you know, probably one of my earliest films, and I know I've mentioned this many, many times, is Let Scare Jessica to Death. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it is a uh, stud. It's basically a character study in um, a spiraling madness and depression, and it is uh, it's very ambiguous. Um, you know, in the events that that unfold, um, is it a ghost? Is it a vampire? Is it in her head? Um, a lot of the people have these scars. Um, it's just, you know, really, really cool movie. And, uh, if you haven't seen it, you check it out. So from a very, very young age, I've, I've always been into horror. It was, you know, in, in science fiction and things like that. And I guess I'm fortunate at 53 to kind of grow up in an era where there was a, there was a lot of good stuff as far as TV and movies. Now, book wise, that there wasn't really much <laughs> you know we tore through uh you know the the hardy boys and nancy drew and the three the three investigators uh, you know at, i grew up before goosebumps and scary stories to tell in the dark and christopher pike so i i missed a lot of that stuff that you know a lot of the younger generations have gotten into mm. um you know i just it just I completely bypassed it you know so, but yeah, it's, it's from, it's from a young age. I've, I've always been in horror. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I want to pinpoint, let's scare Jessica to get to death because I, uh, in the most recent episode that, uh, Silver Shamrock's podcast, Killing Time with Sh- Silver Shamrock, um, they, Ken McKinley talks with, uh, Ronald Kelly and that's actually one of Ron's favorite movies. And that, I just heard them talking about that last week. So that's, that sounds. If all three of you guys are saying that's the movie to watch, I gotta check that out. You guys know your shit. Yeah, it it it's really creepy. I mean, it starts off creepy. It starts off with the woman doing grave carvings, and they're gonna, you know, they have this house that they're moving into, and she's got her friends, and then they discover someone else is living in the house already. So I mean, it just gets <laughs> kind of creepy from there, you know. And, um, and the woman, she's, she's got a history. She's got a history of, you know, depression and, and things like that. So, and for this thing, for this film to be like early seventies and to, to hit upon some of the things that we see so much of today is just I, I always, now it's like fascinating, you know, um, does it, does it hold up for well for today? Eh, I, I think so. I think, I think part of its charm is the fact it was a made for TV movie. Hmm. And also part of its charm is, uh, is that it, it, it's really ambiguous in how it does things. And you didn't really see that back in the seventies. You know, you mean, shoot, you had like the night stalker. You knew that after 30 minutes, it's like, this thing's a vampire. Weird deal. Yeah. You know, <laughs> the next one, this guy's, this guy's like a, he's a strangler or something, you know? So he's, you know, so, you know, you, you, you have a clear cut idea of what you're dealing with. This was a little bit more ambiguous. And so, you know, but at the same time, 
I think it's also right for a remake in the right hands, mm. you know. Um, but time will tell. We'll see. So who do you uh, any any thoughts on who the right hands could be? Thinking of modern filmmakers, it would have to be somebody who can do the slow burn really good. So because you know a lot of times you know sometimes people say the word slow burn and it's got like some kind of negative connotation and it really doesn't. It just means that it's not like an action packed you know like an Evil Dead type movie or you know Nightmare on Elm Street or something like that. It's going to be something that's a little bit more cerebral. You're going to have to, to, to think about what's going on. You're going to have to watch it and pay attention. So, you know, somebody who could probably pull that off, uh, Osgood Perkins, mm. um, you know, um, I mean, it's like you, you could say like the, the, the easy names like Ari Oster and, you know, people like that. But, you know, I think Perkins would be good. <clears throat> ben Wheatley, maybe. Um you know Robert Eggers. Uh, there's, there's that was going to be my choice, Robert <laughs> Eggers, for for the simple fact that the witch is, I love it. I know that, oh, that yeah. it's a polarizing film, but I, I, anytime I hear New England story, being a guy from Massachusetts, I'm like, all right, ears are already perked up. But oh, even yeah. if it wasn't set in that area, it's that's a damn good movie. It is a good movie, and I, I like the way that it pushed the ending. You know, it was, yes. uh, you know, it didn't, it didn't shy away from, from, you know, from, from something that's like, oh, well, she chose the devil. Now she needs to die. You know? <laughs> like, metal, no, she's going to live deliciously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought that um, was really cool that they did it that way. Yeah, for sure. Brennan, uh, you want to, you got anything else on this subject or you want to go on to the next? I, I was going to just put in my two cents and, you know, actually echo you, Pat, you know, I, I don't think I'd ever heard of that movie uh let's scare jessica to death uh maybe two weeks ago and now now i keep hearing it it seems like i can't get away from it so that's <laughs> that's definitely something i'm gonna have to be on the lookout for yeah uh, actually bob one of the things that caught my attention that you said um that kind of drew you into the genre was pushing your pushing yourself kind of trying to discover how far you could go uh being scared before it went too far so i'm wondering if you have any early examples of maybe pushing a little too far and saying, Nope, got to back it up a step. Yeah. Um, night gallery, I believe it's episode three. It's called the doll. Um, I can't watch it today. Had uh, bad dreams. And you know, it's funny too, because on our podcast, we were talking to John Paget and John Paget, of course, you know, he did, uh, you know, um, a lot of the stuff he, he's kind of the school of Ligotti, but one of the things they deal with is like, you know, what I call non-humans, uh, mannequins, puppets, things like that. He's actually, Jonathan is a very skilled ventriloquist. And when Michael asked him what, what got him into it, and he said, he goes, well, there was this old show on TV called the night gallery. And I was like, <laughs> I knew exactly where it was going. And I was like, the doll. And he was like, yes. And I can't, I, I'm, I'm, I can't, I barely can even look at pictures of the doll. Uh, it's just, and it's just a little bitty doll. Who's very ugly, but it's, it's very it, it's just it gave me bad dreams you know and that's probably the point where i i'm gonna have to say no you know um and 
later on in life, I, I developed what they call night terrors. I'm sure y'all have heard of that. You know, I haven't had any in a long time. Mentioning it can trigger it, so I'll probably have one within about two weeks. Um, it's weird. They have a whole show about night terrors. That's uh, I think it's called the Nightmare that I highly recommend. Um, but I used to I used to have them pretty bad. And uh, I can only imagine having that kind of nightmare with a night terror. Uh, I'd probably have to be in a hospital. I'd be I'd be probably have to have some form of, uh, you know, long form therapy <laughs> because it's pretty rough. I'm going to feel so guilty if we hear from you in like a week or two. Be like, you guys, you guys really messed me up. <laughs> I'm never coming back on again. <laughs> Would it be the first time? <laughs> so is it just specifically that episode or it, uh is it other doll related fare that no kinda... no no it's it's not and I, I don't i typically don't like horror movies with dolls anyway i guess because of that um and i say it don't like in, in in kind of a weird way they really creep me out but it's not just uh, that, I mean, it's, I don't know. I think it was a combination of a lot of things. There's a, there's another night gallery episode called cold air, which is a, um, basically it was an adaptation of HP Lovecraft story. And, uh, and it, the, some of the imagery at the end of the segment has stuck with me forever. And it has ended up in my nightmares. Um, so, you know, that's, and, and I don't, Night Gallery was on Hulu, so I highly recommend it. And, you know, it's really cool. It's hosted by Rod Serling, you know, and, uh, it's, it's kind of like a, uh, I don't know. It's kind of like a darker Twilight Zone, but it, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, they got some classic stuff on there and then they have some hit and miss. You'd be like, eh, well, that was okay. You know, lasted about three seasons. So. It was, it was, I don't know, but it, I, I seen most of them and they're kind of instrumental, you know, in, a in, in, I guess the, the formation of, of things that, that kind of got me into horror. When Child's Play came out, were you right away like, nope, not going to watch that? Or did you actually watch that film? Oh, I watched it. Um, I thought it, I thought it was okay. Hmm. Um, and of course, you know the whole thing with with child's play is 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 uh, it's almost like kind of like this horror comedy, yeah. Primarily because you have a wisecracking doll, uh, you know, perfectly voiced by uh, Brad Dorf, and uh, who I, I absolutely love. He's one of the he's a national treasure to guys, probably one of the greatest actors we've ever had. And he's considered, you know, considerably underrated because most people are like, who's that guy? Oh, yeah, Brad Dorff. What's he doing now? Brad has been in some of the greatest movies ever made. <laughs> you know, he was in One Flew, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He played I did not the know Gemini that. Killer. You did not know that? He played Billy Bibbits. I watched the film. I really like it. I got the book, too. Haven't read that, though. The book is really cool. The book is, I believe, uh, it's been a while since I've read it, but it's from the POV of The Chief. So it takes you a while to figure out it's from the POV of The Chief. But once you do, and if you've seen the movie, it's pretty cool. Wait, I just looked up the picture of Brad Dorff. I've seen him. Isn't he in like a Nightmare on Elm Street as well? um, Child's Play 1, 2, The Exorcist 3. 
Mm-hmm. I thought he was. No, he's not. I, I've seen him in other films. Holy Pat, shit! You might honestly know him from Lord of the Rings too. Oh my god! Yeah. Isn't that whole? Yeah, he was the, warm uh, tongue. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he was yeah. in. Um, wow. He was in the he's show in Deadwood. Deadwood. If you mm-hmm. ever caught that. Mm. Halloween two, the remake. Okay. He was Holy in. Uh, and he yeah, did the he's voice been in a lot of stuff. Yep. He's been in an Aliens film. <laughs> he was in Alien Resurrection. So, Bob, I'm jumping a little bit ahead here, but I'm wondering if you have ever tried to uh, work dolls into your fiction or if you would ever try to do that. No, I'm a, I haven't I haven't had an opportunity to do that. So um, I haven't thought of a really good story that would that would fit in there. And it's not just, you know. I can handle like you know what's that what's the name of that film that came out about ten years ago uh, Dead Speak something like that Oh uh, Dead Silence Dead yeah. Silence Yeah, yeah. So, that was creepy know, That is a creepy movie and I can <laughs> yeah. sit there and I can watch the whole damn thing um, You know uh, and it, it doesn't really get to me that bad You know it's just that that one I guess when I was little that one image just kind of you know it really got to me you know but uh i mean there's i I would say that the 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 cold air episode especially the you know the segment at the end that imagery has stuck with me longer you know and uh because i i mean i can say basically i probably had a bad dream and it showed up probably within the last month you know so this is going on for Golly, I was probably about seven or eight when I seen it. So over 40 years, I'm old. <laughs> you know, so it's just um, I have not rewatched that episode as soon as I seen it in the, the listing. Because when they had Night Gallery on Hulu, I was just kind of skip over that. <laughs> <laughs> so. um, I I I get your point totally where it's that kind of one specific instance like, you you know, if there's one trope or whatever you don't like, there's definitely going to be one um, or, or at least there's going to be specific occurrences of that or ways it can happen. Like for example, when uh, Pat, when you brought up child's play, it's funny cause I don't think I ever thought about it before, but I don't really think of that as like a doll movie. Um, it's, uh, it's a, it's a silly movie. It, it's a weird way, thing to say because it's obviously about, a doll but um you know when i think of creepy dolls i think of like the the porcelain faces and the very like uh subtle movements oh annabella something like that yeah 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 something that's a little bit more subdued and not you know running around screaming like a maniac wielding a knife and uh cracking wise as they're you know plunging that knife into your gut um (laughs) (laughs) all right well, you know what? I think that's enough about dolls. Uh, Bob, we want to talk about This Is Horror, and I want to hear from your perspective about your kind of entrance onto that show. Well, uh, let's see how, how it all started. Um, I was in, to kind of go back, back in 2011, I was in an anthology called the Warmed and Bound Anthology, and a lot of us were in a online forum this is kind of right around the time that Facebook was starting to kick in. But we had an online forum that was for 
fans of Will Christopher Bear, Craig Clevenger, and Stephen Graham Jones. And in this forum, not only would we have, you know, like, it's kind of like the way Discord's set up, you know, you have different sub-forums and things like that. Not only did we have our own little things that we talked about, movies and books and all kinds of stuff, but we also got to correspond with, in the forum, with Will Christopher Bear, Craig Clevenger, and Stephen Graham Jones. So there was points in in your tenure there that you could actually be three o'clock in the morning in a sub forum having a chat with Stephen Graham Jones talking about some obscure movie that he just watched. You know, because you never know. You 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 know you check the forum and you're like, oh well, there's five. Whoa, wait a second. There's 15 comments. What the hell's going on? Sure enough, Stephen Graham Jones, have y'all ever seen this movie? You know, and they're like going, oh, yeah, I've seen it. He goes, I need to talk to someone about it right now. You know, so, and it was really cool because, you you know, you 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 could you could correspond with these people. So I was in this anthology that we created, and uh, it got reviewed on a podcast called Booked. Mm. And Booked really liked it. And what Booked did is they had an interview with every writer who submitted to that or who was in that anthology. So we all got a Booked interview. And they had uh, once that happened, Booked decided to get and create their own anthology. It was invitation only. So this is like about a year later. So it, the only way you could be invited is to have been interviewed in, you know, on, on their podcast. So we built up that anthology. We decided to donate the proceeds to charity and it got reviewed by this is horror. And they did a crossover episode with booked. And that's back when, when, uh, it was Michael David Wilson and Dan Howard and, they basically, you know, being a horror website and a horror podcast, they chose the, the, you know, pretty much the three most horrific stories in there. And they really liked, you know, my story. <clears throat> At that point, Michael David Wilson reached out to me, asked me if I wanted to be on the podcast. And uh, I got on, you know, the podcast with him it was basically it was the first time that we ever met uh and um so i was on the podcast and he asked me if i wanted you know possibly you know write reviews uh do some columns and then i became uh basically you know in charge of reviewing uh went from that to you know basically website manager and then um dan howard who was the host at you know the co-host at the time Dan, a lot of things happened for Dan at one time that are really, really good things. His job kind of ramped up. He he got married. He bought his first house. He has his first kids. You know, his his life has changed in such a way. And Michael's trying to build the podcast up in such a way that they're not able to to really kind of meet up. And so Dan had to to drop out. Uh, Dan does occasionally, you know, come on. We've, we, you know, we've had me, Michael, and Dan on, uh, and it's always a pleasure to have Dan on. He's he's great. He's r- super super nice guy. 
Um, but I, I did some guesting, some guest co-host spots. And then when Dan, you know, I guess it just got to the point to where he just couldn't do it anymore. Then Michael asked me, you know, if, if I wanted to be involved as, as a permanent co-host and, you know, my, my whole thing is, it's like, Hey, you know, I can do that. Um, as long as we can work around my schedule too. And so that's, that's what we've done. We've had to do, you know, a lot of time gym, gymnastics and stuff like that. Cause Michael lives, you know, first of all in the future on another planet. So, uh, that's the way you got to really kind of look at it. You know, it's like, where does he live? Not here. Um, and he lives in the future. He doesn't know things because he's not paying attention to things that have already happened, but <clears throat> we make the time work. We make it all uh, work, and there's, you know, um, it's it's a lot of fun, and you get to, you know, to talk. If you would have told me, like, probably six years ago, you just said, hey, you know, you're going to be on a Skype call with Kathy Koja, who, you know, I, like, worship the ground that she walks on. I'd have, I'd have said, you're a fucking liar, because there's just no way. And and so it was so hard for me not to just totally geek out when she was, you know, when we had her on the podcast. Uh, so and it was just it was really difficult because I could have just went, you know, I could have pulled that, you know, the the Chris Farley thing, <laughs> you know, when he's like interviewing Paul McCartney. <laughs> I could have done that, but I didn't. I behaved myself. I didn't fanboy. And uh, we had a really, really good discussion, and I know we'll have her back on. So, I mean, it, it's, you know, you you, you definitely, you know, you, it, when you meet your, your fans, I mean, you, if you meet someone that you're a fan of, whether it's on a podcast, stuff like that, you want them to come back. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's the whole key. You don't want them to be, well, they're never coming back. <laughs> you <know? laughs> so you want them you want them to be able to come back and, and, and have a good time and have a pleasant time. And I think that that we, you know, me and Michael have that kind of connection and we can have that connection with our guests to where they always want to come back. And that's, you know, that's pretty good. We just kind of put them front and center and try not to geek out too much. <laughs> I, I would agree with that. I, you know, I, um, I, I've said before, this is horror was really the first podcast within this, you know, community that I discovered. And, and you guys definitely have a way of creating an environment that puts the guest at ease, you know, and even if the conversation steers into, I guess I'd say uncomfortable talk topics, but I mean, controlled uncomfortable topics mm -hmm. something that is interesting to talk about but with that kind of with that safety net of this is an okay place to kind of lay out all your feelings on the subject and i don't think i've ever heard a conversation where you know somebody bears their soul and then feels uncomfortable seems uncomfortable afterwards and that's a, a credit to you guys to establish that environment because that it's not an easy thing to do uh, I would imagine. I don't think we've quite uh, gotten there yet. We've never had anybody cry cry on the show. I don't think, Pat. That's have not, you? Uh... That's not true. Oh, that's not true. That's right. I did make Pat cry once. No, um... no. Uh, <laughs> not to put her on the spot, but since he brought up V Castro. Oh, was, that's right. Mm. Yes. It was touching what she talked about, and it meant a lot that she could say that to us. Mm-hmm. What, what yeah. she said. Um, 
Yeah, I, I got to echo what Brennan said. Uh, your show was not the first for me, but it was one of the first. My very first horror, quote unquote, horror community was Inkice. Then uh, mm-hmm. um, the horror show of Brian Keene, the one that got my attention with that was when that whole chising, cheesing thing blew up. And I was like, all right, well, I don't really know much about it. So then I listened to his episode and I was hooked. They knew their shit. They were not biased. Mm-hmm. Uh they had their bias, like everyone, but they kept it. True journalistic uh, intentions were very prevalent, and um, I just listened to every episode I could. I got into you guys, and I agree, you guys have a very comforting um, atmosphere. As a listener, I'm, I'm like, I I just want to keep listening to you two talk, and I love how, like with me and Brennan, we we just got the same foreign accent both boston boys and you're texan he's from england it's cool man it's like it's really neat you guys are in same extent as me brennan we're at this point in our life pen pals well i don't know have you met have you actually met michael no no we we will meet but of course you know we haven't uh you know and it's there, there is a dichotomy. I mean, when I first came on, they had, you know, some people, pe- a lot, some people didn't know who I was, and they were kind of like, you know, what, who's that, who's that redneck guy I got on the phone now, and I got that old boy on there, you know, <laughs> and then, uh, and then, you know, there was, there was a time when we, especially when, like, when Max Booth is on the show, it's, it's, there's like literally, there's no script, there's no, we can't even get a word in, mm. usually. And because and, and if you if you say anything to him, that is, is especially if it's something he can find online, he's going to he's going to latch on to it. And that's that's your show. He makes my face hurt from laughing. I hear that. He is just and you know, now I've met Max in person multiple times and he is he is uh, he is just as funny in person. Uh, the first time I met him, um, we w- went to the San Antonio Book Fair. And uh, had a good day. Had a good day selling books out in the sun. And uh, then we decided to go get some. Uh, me, him, and uh, his wife Lori decided to go get some food on the Riverwalk. So we went to uh, you know a Mexican restaurant on the Riverwalk. And uh, while we were waiting to get into the Mexican restaurant, um, these uh, pigeons decided that one that they wanted to attack Max. <laughs> So I thought that's, that was really kind of strange. And Max is kind of like, what the fuck's going on here? <laughs> and then the pigeon came back. And where we were sitting by the Riverwalk, there was a couple of pigeons behind us. And this pigeon and another pigeon decided to make furious love right behind Max. <laughs> and it was it was one of the funniest things that I've ever seen. I mean, these two pigeons were like going at it. <laughs> <laughs> They were, they were, they were hot, you oh know, and Max is like, what the fuck is going on? You know? And, uh, and of course I, and, you know, if he gets on me or something, I say, Hey, you know, at least, uh, I never, I've never had any pigeons, you know, just have sex, you know, for me. He <laughs> <laughs> was like, Oh, you had to bring that up. Didn't you? <laughs> you know? So I, he's, yeah, he's, he's probably one of our, our favorite guests because we never know what's going to happen. It's like completely unpredictable. I have one story that's directly core, um, related to you and and Michael. When we were originally talking about you guys coming on, just so the listeners know, it was supposed to be 
one episode, but time and schedules didn't line up, three different time zones. Mm-hmm. Uh, life happened, and um, I talked to Max because we had we uh, when we had him on months ago. Um, I talked to Michael and I said, "Hey, you got any questions for him?" And he had one, and we used a fake name uh, with his initials. Max knew who the question was from right away. So mm-hmm. after we recorded, I go, um, I told him our idea that we're going to have you guys on. That was after we all of us talked. And he said, hey, could I get in on that? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, uh, yep. And it, long story short, he couldn't make it um, because he and what his exact, well, paraphrased words were, um, I will be away all October on a secret mission <laughs> in uh, Michigan. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to say what that is. He's been pretty much publicly open about it, as has uh, you know, Mallerman talking about how they're hanging out together and stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, But what was going to happen was uh, his, his idea was I'd like to wear a ghost costume and at one part just appear and go, boo. <laughs> and I said, hey, what's the likelihood that you could appear – on Bob's screen, like go to his house. Cause I didn't know how far away you guys lived. And, and he said, four hour drive is kind of a little too far for, <laughs> for a silly joke. <laughs> so yeah. I, 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 I thought you may have been okay with it. I was nervous if Michael would have, I didn't know if he would like get upset. I, I'm sure he wouldn't, but I was nervous with his reaction. If that, if we pulled that off, go ahead, Brennan. I was just going to say, if there's one person who would drive four hours for a practical joke, I think that's the one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no doubt. And he would have to turn, especially if he was still working at the hotel, it'd be like, hey, I got to go. But it's only been five minutes. He can't, he, dude, come in. <laughs> no, no, no. I got to go. <laughs> I got to go. <laughs> but yeah, he would He would totally do that. He, he Him and Laurie are just, they're really, really cool Um you know, and it's, he, he's, I don't know. He can be kind of like on social media. He can, he, it's weird because he can, he, he can piss some people off. I mean, he's one of the nicest. going after a uh, Ramsey Campbell. <laughs> like two months ago. Yeah. He, he, and he doesn't care. I mean, yeah. and you know, and that's, that's the whole thing. He's like, what are they going to do? You know? Um, <laughs> But I mean, it's but he's one of the nicest guys I've ever met. I mean, he just he's a sweetheart. He really is. He can, yeah. you know, um, he's and he's smart, like brilliantly smart. I've you know worked with him on Mojo Rising. I worked with him on uh, he did the the edits for their watching. Uh, he's edited me in on multiple short stories. Um, he is, he knows more about my story than I do very quickly. Cause I mean, cause usually, cause it's like, Hey, your story's next. I'm reading it tomorrow, you know? And within three days, he's like, Hey, here's some edits, <laughs> you know? And then, or like it was, a, you know, I had a really tough rejection from him because it went all the way down into like, you know, fourth round. Hmm. And it, and basically he was like, he goes, this email sucks because I'm rejecting your story. He goes, if I if I could have another eight thousand words in my story, I would have your story, but I can't. So I'm sorry. It was literally flipping a coin, and I, you know, and I was like, okay, you know. 
but I mean, it's, it's, I get it. You know, it, it was one of those stories that couldn't be cut. Even he agreed. He goes, no, dude, you can't cut it. You know, he goes, if you, if you cut it, you're going to lose something. Mm. He goes, it's just a long short story. <laughs> so, you know, uh, but he, you know, I, I managed to, to get in with him and lost films and having, having, getting rejected from your friends who know your work and they know that, you know, especially if you get rejected because of length or because of context or tone or if it just doesn't fit. Those are things, you know, that I can live, always live with because there's always a market for something, right? Right. But to me, being rejected by people that you work with and they turn around and reject you and you've made it like several rounds into like an anthology, that tells you that you're on the right track. Mm-hmm. You didn't get, you might not have got the acceptance, but you're on the right track because you made it that far. You know, you made it through whoever was reading the slush and you, you got that editor to read that story two or three times before they had to turn it down. So obviously, you know, if you made it past the slush and you got into the, you know, the first round, they liked something about it. True. You know, and to me, it's, it's a lot of times it's just wrong market, you know? So it's it's one of those things. It's just you got to keep on, you know, going, keep on pushing. I think your friends, especially if they're in the publishing industry, getting your rejection from them is is not a bad thing. No, it is a good thing. You know, and especially if you trust them. And you know, yes. that sounds like that's the type of relationship you have with max where he's not going to blow smoke up your ass um if the you know if he's looking at your story and you know not not even talking about you but more in a hypothetical sense um if he's looking at it and he's gonna let you know whereas if he if it's just on the cusp and there's a market for it but this isn't quite the right fit you know you're gonna Mm -hmm. get that nice steer in the right direction uh you know, you, you might want to seek out an anthology that's more geared towards this or a call right. that's more geared towards that. Um, and that's invaluable, you know, especially when you compare it to submitting to a complete stranger where you're going to get, you know, a no thanks. And you're left in that position of, OK, is uh, is it is it too long for you? Is it uh, is it the wrong, you know, did it not meet the specifications of the call? Uh, mm-hmm. Did it absolutely suck? Um, and you just, you're, you're none the wiser. You don't know if that's a complete retool or if you can turn around and submit it the next day. So to me, that's, that's invaluable. Yeah. I mean, cause you, you, the other side of the coin is that you have like certain publications, especially some of the, some of the older ones, the, the older editors where you have to print your manuscript. This is still going on. I think for the most part, it's very, very few. But I remember a couple years ago, I had to print a manuscript and mail it in. And then uh, I got rejected on that. And then I had to uh, one that I did it, uh, did an email submission for in three years. The story has been rejected multiple times by multiple people who ended up taking other stores from me three years later, I get the acceptance on the for the second one. And, and actually it was, it was a market that I really wanted to get into mm. three years. That's insane. And so at that point right there, I was kind of like, well, thank God I didn't sell it. 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> like, yeah, I'd love for you to publish it, but you can't unless you want to buy second rights. You know, I mean, I don't even know how that works. But you know, I got really fortunate in there, and it's like you have some people who actually believe in you, and the edits were minimal, and you know, and so, but it, it, it's just you just got to keep on plugging away. Mm. Yeah, Brennan. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you. I I was pausing because I thought you were uh, onto something. No, so I mean, feels... we we were we were talking about the podcast, but I mean, we've almost kind of switched full tilt into writing here. So <laughs> I'm kind of curious uh, about how you got into it. You gave us your kind of initial tilt into the media side of horror, but um, how did you make that jump into realizing that you wanted to kind of craft your own stuff? Um, when I was I don't know, probably about 12 or 13 years old. I read uh, the Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury. And I really, really liked it. And I had a, a spiral notebook and a pen. And I started writing my own version of the Martian Chronicles. Uh, because we, we learn by imitation. We, you know, we, 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 that's, how, that's how we become inspired. It's like, I want to write like this. What do I do? You know, and the only thing you do is like, okay, I just read this story. What if, what if I wrote, what if I wrote that story, you know? And so, you know, and it's like even the most famous people in the world have ever done it. Stephen King, him and his brother used to go see movies. His brother had a printing press. They would go see movies and then write their own 30 page novelization of the movies and print them out and try to sell them to people. (laughs) You know, did 13 year old Stephen King know that that was illegal. No, he didn't know that he found out, but you know, (laughs) he found out from, you know, very smart adults going, you can't do that. (laughs) Same thing with me. I turned over the story to my dad and my dad's like, Hey, this is like really good that you're writing and everything like that. But why don't you try to write your own story instead of writing the Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury your way, (laughs) you know? And, but it stuck with me. And, and so I'm, and I started filling up notebooks with these weird stories, you know, about people coming in from other planets and they were actually on the, you know, on the planet earth. And, and it was, but it was, uh, it was like, Oh wait, this is like the planet of the apes. I was influenced by that too, <laughs> you know? And so, and, and I just started writing all this, this stuff. And it was, it's crazy. Cause I never finished them. I always come about halfway through and I'm like, Oh, I have another idea. So I thought <laughs> that's what writers do. You know, I didn't know anything about how to create a story or anything like that, but it stuck with me. I wanted to write. And it wasn't until I was probably about 19. No, I was probably about 20 years old. And I was so frustrated with with writing and I wanted to write. And I ended up uh, being in a position where I had a lot of time on my hands. Uh, I had a job and going to college, but I still had a lot of time on my hands. Uh, took like a really, really small load in college to try to get my GPA up and it was pretty easy course. The next thing I know I'm going to writer's guilds and, and, you know, the local writer's guild and trying to get involved in conference and learning how to write. And that was instrumental in, in, in learning how to develop story, you know? And, uh, we had some, this writer's guild, the local one was one actually they their conference was one of the biggest conferences in the world. They had agents from editors from New York City, uh, Los Angeles, California, all over the world. 
Uh, I mean, I think uh, Brian Keane was at one of them, you know, as, 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 you know, one of the panelists, uh, you know, uh, so, and then we had, uh, and what I think what really kind of pushed me, and this is how early this was, was I didn't even know we had a local writer's guild. I just happened to be reading the newspaper and I see a picture of these guys and they're evil looking guys. <laughs> Okay, and one of them is David J. Scow, and the other one is Richard Christian Matheson, and then the third one was this guy named Joe Lansdale, and they were all taking a picture in Beaumont, Texas, 20 minutes away from where I live, where I live at this writer's conference, and I'm like, what the hell is this? <laughs> These guys are horror writers. I've seen them in the horror magazines that I, and this happened underneath my nose, and I'm like, the next day, I'm at that guild. I'm at that writer's guild. When do y'all meet? When when are y'all having another conference? Oh, it's not going to be till next year. You know, and I tell them, I want, you know, I like, I want to write horror. And I just got involved in it and we had some really, really great conferences. And of course, like anything else, uh, other things happen. And I kind of, you know, honed my craft, but I got, I kind of got away from it. I had a really, really bad experience with the New York editor, uh, who wanted something of mine, sent it to him, got a terrible rejection letter from him six months later, uh, and it really kind of just busted me up. And I didn't do any submitting or anything like that for the longest time, the longest time. But it never left me, you know. And the thing that got me back into it was actually uh, reading Fight Club and discovering the cult website and and getting into transgressive fiction. Hmm. So, but yeah, and which, you know, I always come back to horror. <laughs> we, uh, yeah, man, we... Even if all of us try to escape it, it's just can't you do can it. Never escape it. Don't want to. <laughs> I That's thought for sure you were going to give us a, uh, you know, just when I thought I was out, it pulls me back in. A dramatic Godfather reading. <laughs> oh, that's actually from uh, Seinfeld. Yeah, that too. <laughs> yeah, I'm just fucking with you, Brendan. I know it's from the Godfather. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, no, 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 man. It's from Goodfellas. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know someone was going to jump in. We're nope. all silly We're right now. We're waiting for you, man. We're waiting yeah. for you. So, so did you, you got to talk... make up for that joke. <laughs> yeah, I know. Real awful joke. Um, did you talk with Scow or um, Lansdale at all uh, during those early days of your writing career? No. The probably the closest I came, I, t- I met with uh, talked with Ridley Pearson, who uh, writes thrillers. He was uh, in a in, played in a band with Stephen King. He played bass in the Rock Bottom Remainders. Hmm. Uh, so he uh, and I met uh, Andrew Niedermeyer, who uh, wrote uh, The Devil's Advocate. So a lot of people, you know, I'm sure you've seen that movie with uh, yeah. Al Pacino. I got the DVD. <laughs> yeah, I got it on DVD. It's a good movie. Yeah. Um, you know, so, I mean, we, we met, but some of those, like, influential, you know, writers, they were there, and then they were doing other conferences, you know. So, of course, you know, they tried to get them back, uh, 
but I mean, the main thing was, is that we, you know, we, we got a chance to have like a one-on-one with the editor. So they had like a contest. So I submitted like a chapter and a synopsis to the, um, you know, for the mystery category. And there were like 58 entries and I got into the top five and I ended up winning. And then I had a meeting with Michael Seidman, who at the time was the editor of Mysterious Press. So pretty big press. And uh, my one on one was absolutely terrible, you know, because, um, you know, you, you have these delusions of grandeur like, hey, man, I'm probably about to get a writing contract. You know, he's going to want the whole thing. You know, and you go in there and it's like, uh, so, hey, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm the one who won, uh, wanted to get my writing, you know, so, um, and he was like, he goes, well, you know, in, in heavy New York accent, he goes, well, let me tell you something right now. He goes, I'm not going to take this type of story. He goes, it was the best written story out of the five that I've read. He goes, and so you do have a lot of promise. He goes, but you got a bad cop in your story. I was a cop for 20 years. Ain't no such thing as a bad cop in New York City. So I'm like going, really? (laughs) (laughs) This is in the 80s. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, hey, man, did you ever see that movie called Rush? (laughs) And that's a true story. It was based in my area, you know. So anyway, um, that was but I mean, he gave me some really good words of encouragement. And, uh, you know, he said. Because he even kind of come back and said, he goes, that's, he goes, that was, he goes, that's kind of harsh. He goes, but he goes, you, you just, he goes, you're young, you're wet behind the ears. You're making, you, you, even though yours was the best written, it's not something that I would take. He goes, you've got to, to hone your craft. He goes, you haven't written a million words yet. And I'm, I felt like going, well, yeah, since I was born, I've probably written a million words, but I, I, it took me a while to figure out what he meant. And I still have, I probably still haven't written a million words, but I'm probably getting pretty damn close. And I still have a lot to learn. You know, it is a constant, constant struggle. And he's not the editor who gave me like a really, really bad time. That was actually Peter Miller, who uh, I don't recommend him at all. He he has that, uh, I don't know, that 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 kind of uh, swagger. You know, yeah, I had lunch with John Demi type guy. You oh, know. you're looking for the word douchebag. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, but they, they, you know, and he, I think he's a book doctor now, but probably one of the coolest people that I ever met there was a guy, an older guy named Bill Thompson. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Stephen <laughs> King's agent. Yeah. He, well, he was Stephen King's editor, his first sorry. editor. Editor. Sorry. Yeah. And he built, Bill tells us, he told the story it, and it was really cool about this writer that he knew who, uh, who, didn't believe in himself and everything like that and took took his first book which wasn't even that long and threw it away and his wife dug it out of the garbage can and so you know this is a story if you read on writing you pretty much know where this is going you know but to he'll to hear bill say you know steve steve didn't even know how many zeros went behind four hundred thousand? his hand was shaking so bad basically because they had to telegram steve because he didn't have a phone (laughs) you know and he kept saying he goes he goes he goes i sold we sold the paperback for carrie for four hundred thousand dollars that's crazy and and steve's like four thousand dollars he goes no 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 four hundred thousand dollars he's like forty thousand dollars he goes no he goes to write a four 
and write two zeros and a comma and then two more zeros and a period and then two zeros. And he's like, that's almost half a million dollars. He's like, right. And he's like, Steve's like, I'm quitting my job. <laughs> you know, and I mean, no shit. I would too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but back then, this is like what, 1970, I guess probably 73, 74, 75. That's mm-hmm. a lot of money. It's a it's lot. A lot. That's quit your job money. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even today it's quit your job money, but back yes. then that was really, you know, we're set, you know? <laughs> and it's just today it's, uh, <laughs> it's, today it's quit your job money, but you better get going on the next one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's quit your, yeah, today it's quit your job money and you better be on the way to the broker. <laughs> yeah. I want you to, to, to double this in, in 10 years. <laughs> you know? well, I wonder how, lean, but yeah, how the hell it. did you, how would you go about that? I mean, that's a that's a lot of money to gamble on a new <laughs> a new author. Well, when Brian De Palma wants to make your film, make your book into a film, you know, that's going to push those paperback rights up. I guess so. Yeah, <clears throat> because I mean, he, he Brian De Palma was he was just coming off of what blowout. Yeah, he must have been somewhere around in that, in that area, you know, uh, who, you know, and Brian's probably one of my, one of my favorite early creators, you know, Scarface, uh, you know, body double dressed to kill. Um, yeah, but you know, looking at it now, it's like, yeah, Brian De Palma made a lot of problematic shit too. <laughs> so, but it's, uh, you know, as far as cinema goes, if you can push that part of yourself, back a little bit and enjoy you can you can see you know a master you know and uh he was he was pretty hot director at the time so that probably that's probably what pushed it up to close to half a million dollar mark and i'm sure you know steve probably got points and stuff like that from the movie and you know and the rest is history yeah dude did okay for himself i suppose yeah Bill Bill is great, man. I mean, and I think he's uh what they call I think he's like Michael Seidman. He does his own. He's a book doctor. So you basically he does, you know, book doctor's kinda like an editor. You know, um it's just a fancy term for somebody you're paying him, you know, twenty five, three thousand dollars, he's gonna edit your manuscript. You know, probably give you pointers on what you can do to to, to make it better. You know, which you know, if you have the patience and you have time, you can do all that stuff. You know, it takes longer, but it's free. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, Brennan, you got anything else on this point? Well, I was going to say from from there, let's uh, let's talk about Mojo Rising. Now, um, that that one has a whole lot of uh, crime elements mixed in with its horror. Now, is, is crime writing and I don't know if I'm describing that right. That's the way I thought of it. I don't know if that's the way you thought of it, though. Well, I call it weird crime. Um, it is um, Broken River Books is probably the biggest publisher of what I consider some of the best weird crime that's out there. Uh, you know, they uh, Gabino Iglesias, uh, you know, um, of course, you know, J. David Osborne. They they straddle that line. There's like a border a border that they try to cross, you know, to where things get really really weird. And I've always thought that 
I love reading crime fiction, especially noir. And I got into a lot of noir around the time I started reading more transgressive fiction, like Fight Club and things like that. Will Christopher Bear, Craig Clevenger, they they kind of write in this kind of weird kind of noir, um, I guess I, what I would call almost like, you know, psychological terror type stuff. And it was, it was dark and it was like, I can write this, I can write these stories and it don't have to be supernatural. Uh, in, in writing about criminals, there is a criminals are desperate. So you got like everyday good, you know, John Doe, he goes to work every day. He's a nice guy. He's married to his wife. He's got two kids. And then he encounters the uncanny and it wrecks his life. Okay. And so now he's got to become a hero. That story has been done to death. Not that I'll never write a story like that. I probably have an idea for one, but seeing that that white knight is, is been done to death. I kind of like the idea of, you know, John Doe, who's a meth dealer who screwed over his, uh, the last guy that he was, uh, you know, dealing with and they want him dead. It, you know, encounters the uncanny as well, because now you've got somebody who is desperate, who will literally do every single thing they can to survive that, that they've already crossed some borders. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So writing from a criminal aspect, uh, is really good, especially if you've got somebody who doesn't really want to kill anybody, mm-hmm. but they're on the wrong side of the law. Which in Mojo Rising, that's what you have. You have, you know, Brent Juni, who is never, you know, he knows people who killed and kill people, you know, and his his own brush with that. He's he's pretty much kept his nose out of it and just done his job. And that's, you know, and then he's faced with, you know, some really, really weird shit going down. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And the whole, like, I'm glad you threw it out as noir, because I'm thinking, I'm like, I to my mind, it's crime. Uh, and to my mind, it's noir. So to have you kind of validate that, that makes me feel like, oh, good, cool. I knew what I was reading. Um, <laughs> but it's, again, personal, personal preference. But when I think of noir, I think of kind of like a city setting. So to have it in rural texas was was really really cool really an interesting setting and there's one character that i'm gonna need you to tell me a little bit more about and i'm thinking of morris i i need to know where (laughs) the idea of having this dude stitched together with kevlar came from okay um years ago a guy that we, me and a bunch of my friends, uh, went to school with, and he kind of bounced around, moved from one school district to another. We get out of school. Um, he gets involved with some bad stuff, uh, and he gets shot in the gut, and uh, the bullet splits his liver in half. This is a true story. Stitching him up, uh, he turned septic, almost died, um, and then his body began to swell. Today, he, he, if you look at his hands, he has stretch marks on his fingers. 
his fingers swell up like sausages. And uh, so now he's, you know, he's about, you know, I think he's maybe five foot seven, probably weighs about 150 pounds now. They had to cut off the, the basically the rotting flesh on his gut because it was, you know, diseased and septic. And they ran out of skin to graft. So they used Kevlar. And so he actually has part of his abdomen is actually Kevlar. Oh, no. my God. Yeah. And it, it's it's actually used a lot more than you'd expect it to be used. Um, but it's not as cool as you think it is. He has to wear a back brace. And not because he has back problems, but because over time, the Kevlar has stretched. And it has lost its structural integrity. So to keep the Kevlar in place, he wears a back brace, not because he has a back problem, but because there's a front plate to the back brace that keeps his gut in place. Um, I have not seen this, this guy in probably 20 years. But a really, really good friend of mine who actually probably passed away about six years ago, um, and I asked him if he had seen him. I said, man, how's he doing? You know, he's like, oh, man, just sits around and drinks all day. You know, his liver got split and now he's got scar tissue and now it doesn't affect him anymore. So he can literally drink. He goes, he literally drinks alcohol all day long and can't even get drunk. And he goes, and then, then he grosses out his friends and shows them his gut. I said, so what happened with his gut? He goes, well, he's got Kevlar there. So I said, so it's basically like just like gray, like, you know, almost like carbon fiber. He goes, yeah, he goes, it, it's it's really kind of weird. He goes, but part of it's kind of gotten worn. And it's like as it worn, get worn, it's stretched. He goes, so he has a section in there and it's kind of like a window into his abdomen. You know, and I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, dude, you could see his intestines moving around in there. And And that stuck with me. And so as whenever I started thinking of Morris oh, bulletproof, I said, this this guy has to be bulletproof. You know, he he has to have the Kevlar gut, you know, and that was one of the things I'm like that what my friend told me. It's like, like if he moves, if he's sitting back in his couch or something like that and he moves, he said, you could see his intestine, like the coils moving in that thing. Oh, my God. And I'm like going, dude, that's just nasty. <laughs> it's, it's just your body. You know, it's just your body. It's, you know, that's all it is. I mean, it's just you can you can just see into his gut, you know. And uh, and I'm like, that's that's just and it. I'm like, OK. What if that what if it was really alive? You know, and so that was that was the thing that what if it was something inside of him that was really moving, you know, and that so that was the imagery. So I knew I had to put that shit in the story. But at the same time, in writing Mojo Rising, I realized that I that I also wanted to play with reality. So uh you know, it, it's and it's one of those it's one of those stories that um to be, I got lucky. I'm going to tell you right now, I got lucky as hell. I got lucky as hell in the way it turned out. Um, 
because you know Max is published through Perpetual Motion Machine, and Max is always you know he's kind of hinted, hey, you know, do you ever think about doing a sequel to it? And I'm like, I, I do, but I probably won't because I, I don't think I can capture lightning in the bottle twice. You know, I got very very lucky. I had a really good editor who knew what I was trying to to accomplish, and I managed to do it. And I think that if I did it now, I would definitely I could probably play around with some ambiguity, but I probably would not be able to to bend reality like that again because it would be something I would be trying to do, whether it's something that became organic as part of the writing process, you know. So Mojo Rising is what happens when you when you listen to a lot of Doors. <laughs> I knew it. I fucking well, knew it. That's what I was going to ask you. I was wondering if uh, are you a huge Doors fan or is it just that the uh, attitude I guess you were going for just fit their music to a T. And I'm a huge Doors fan and um like uh you know I have I followed John Densmore on Twitter. Uh this is the you know fiftieth anniversary of Morrison Hotel, which means we will soon be having the fiftieth anniversary of LA Woman. So, uh, because I believe that came out the following year. Morrison Hotel, that's probably my favorite Doors album, man. It's really good. Morrison, yeah, Morrison Hotel uh, was instrumental. L.A. Woman, I started listening to a lot of the Doors, and I, 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 get, I get on these kicks, and it was right after a Pink Floyd kick. So, if I had started writing Mojo Rising before... <laughs> I started listening to the doors. It would have had, it would have been called something else and more aligned with Pink Floyd. Mm. So I get like in these kind of musical kicks and I was listening to a lot of doors and, uh, I found this picture of Jim Morrison levitating a girl. And I thought this is really, really cool. It's not, he's really not levitating a girl. It's just, it's this really cool picture. If you look it up online, Jim Morrison levitating a girl, you can find it. And, uh, it's, it's from a photo shoot he did. And I just got really, really, you know, obsessed really cool. with that. Yeah, it is. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. That's really neat. <laughs> and I started realizing that there's a story in in a lot of his, you know, in a lot of his uh, lyrics and things like that that aren't necessarily a story that you would expect it to be. It's like I started seeing patterns because I was listening to it so much. So I, there were certain songs and I said, you know what? I want to put the doors in this. So I had to consult quite a few people about what I could do, which ain't much, uh, without having to pay. And then we are talking about John, you know, John, at the time, Ray Manzarek was still alive, I believe. So, you know, and so you had like the, the three remaining members and John Dinsmore is probably the most protective of anything. It's like if you heard any door song, it had to go through John's desk and he had to sign off on it. If you when you hear the doors in a commercial, it's because somebody fought for that through John because John's like super protective of their stuff. And, you know, and it, uh, it was I was actually contemplating writing him a letter or trying, you know, just trying to get to him and just ask him permission. But my fear of him going, no, <laughs> would have been, <laughs> you know, and just going, thank you, sir. <laughs> you know, that would have been it was too much. 
So I got with some, you know, some people who knew, you know, the, the legalities of that. And I found out exactly how much you can use. Like I said, it's not much. Um, uh, basically, I think you get you can get a 75 percent of one line of a song. In a in a story. Before before somebody's going to go, you're going to have to pay for that. <laughs> you know, so I was very judicious. If you know your doors, you you will see lyrics in there. And if you don't, then you'll just think I'm being really, really trippy and poetic. <laughs> but uh, and I've reversed some of the, the things, you know, just to get away with it. Um, there was even I had to talk with uh, one of my writer friends who has a, a legal background who did some research for me. And he said that, you know, Mojo Rising, the way you're spelling it is not the way that they spell it because you're adding the G. So because without the G, Mojo Rising is Jim Morrison. It's just an anagram. So um, by adding the G, it, it makes it not that. Um, so that was a consideration. Do we add a G? Do we not add a G? So finally, you know, put the G at the end. Um, but there was a company called Mojo Rising that did, I think they did video game parts. And he said they're, they're branded. So you could run into a problem. But usually titles are, are safe, you know. Especially you're not you, you have no video games or anything like that inside your story or anything like that, you know. So I was like, no, I really don't. So it worked out pretty good. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Um, and that, that was primarily why I wanted to write it, because I just had this really you know cool idea. And, uh, you know, it, and it, it's. There's there's some stuff in there. It's it's about things that I've that I've seen without without being you know under the influence of alcohol. <laughs> uh, like uh, you know um, I have like the scene with the uh, crocodile girl. I've I was a witness to something of that nature from the the rundown abandoned uh, you know apartment complex hotel. I I've seen stuff like that it's 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 pretty bad (laughs) well the whole the whole thing with with morris the reason i wanted to ask you that is because it was so detailed and then you you recounting it here was uh like almost word for word with a lot of the descriptions you put in the book so you know i read that thinking like he must either have known someone or read a really detailed article that stick stuck with him at one point, mm-hmm. which of course got me thinking about the rest of it. You know, any, any part, like how much is, how much is fiction and how much is uh, drawn on that Bob Pastorella, Texas lifestyle. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, I don't do meth. I never have. Um, <laughs> uh, but um Years and years and years ago, when I was a weed lad in my 20s, I did have a a small pharmaceutical uh, business on the side that the Jefferson County Sheriff's Department really didn't like it. Uh, They didn't like my hours, probably, you know. (laughs) So uh, and of course, you know, when you when you do that, uh, when you when you're selling pharmaceuticals, ecstasy uh, to, uh, you know, to people um, and it, it. you know, it's shitty. It's like two years before that was actually fucking legal. So anyway, um, you know, we could, but we couldn't use that. We didn't know it was illegal. No. <laughs> they changed the law on us. That's not fair. <laughs> we were 
discriminating businessmen. Yeah. Um, but you run a, you run across some savory characters, and you get to see things that the average Joe doesn't get to see. You know, um, we we sent you know I seen people taking a girl very much like Crocodile Girl out of a house, and she was a heroin addict, and her 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 arm had abscessed to the point to where you you know there was there was bone exposed in the crook of her elbow, you know, and it was like this girl's gonna die, you know, and and sadly she did. You know, so it it's just that stuff sticks with you, and it's it's stuff that you know when say when people say I don't have anything to write about, and it's like yeah you do, you just gotta think. <laughs> <laughs> On the you just line, gotta think about those years between like sixteen and twenty four. Yeah. No matter who you are, you did so much stupid shit that you can pull from. <laughs> exactly. On the lines of Jim Morrison, um, one of the scenes in the stand, it's an earlier one, is when uh, Big Tex and his friends are shooting the shit and they talk about how they saw this guy ask for directions and it was uh, quote unquote Jim Morrison after he's, you know, his supposed death. And I don't know why that's always stuck with me. My brother and I really dig the doors. We're into the 70s and uh mainly 60s and 70s rock and and the doors is just one of the bands that we like and i i just think that's really cool i don't know why i've thought of that for years as being one of my favorite scenes but it just made me wonder hmm there's more to that story if that were a true story and it's probably never going to get written but that's my contribution to this whole specific jim morrison topic all right, so Bob, moving to your other uh, latest book, they're watching with Michael David Wilson. Let's just start off with a baseline of how'd that come about? <laughs> the, that's the fifty thousand dollar question. Uh, that actually started. Um, me and Michael decided that we wanted to write something, and he he had an idea, and we had collaborated. You know. On articles on the website, we collaborate on the podcast. And he said, "Hey, you know, we ought to try writing a book. I have an idea." And so he he pitched the idea to me, um, and I liked it, uh, you know. And I think it basically the thing that's really the catalyst for it, <clears throat> which you know, I'm definitely not trying to come out of left field here, was there was uh, we both have a mutual admiration of of a of a, of a film called Kill List. Have either one of y'all ever seen the film Kill List? Haven't seen no, it, heard anybody. about it. Yeah, so Kill List, um, I really liked how you, you you have a film that starts one way and ends somewhere else, but everything is, is logical. It all fits. And so, and we were talking about that, and he said, I have an idea that may work for that. And we started bouncing this idea back and forth and building on it, you know, via email. And so we knew that we wanted to have, you know, a guy who, who was, we decided that we wanted to cover voyeurism, but we didn't want to do it in a skeezy way. Uh, we wanted to basically, of course, now you know twenty, you know hindsight's twenty twenty, so we can say. But at the time, we just basically we knew we didn't want to get problematic with it, 
but we also knew that we needed to get provocative with it. There's there's a massive difference uh, between you know something being erotic and, and sexy and something being you know borderline stalking. And so we wanted we wanted to 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 write to where we had a protagonist who really really ultimately believes that he is not a stalker. He is. <laughs> but you you don't really begin to lose sympathy for him until he starts to make some really really organically dumb decisions. You know, decisions that like the normal person would be like, you know, I'm kind of thinking don't trust anyone. I need to move because something weird is going on. But that's not what he does. So we basically bounced these ideas around, built up an outline that was that was really a good outline, and then we decided, you know, to start writing. And I I wrote the beginning section uh, because it was you know a new place, so we wanted to have that fish out of water, and emphasis on the word fish, uh, so that that definitely came into play. Um, with the with the apartment, Pelagic Court, uh, you know, and and get getting him into to where we ultimately knew he needed to 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 be basically the catalyst of the story, uh, which in the original draft took us a lot longer to get there. <laughs> so, but that's uh, you know we fixed that. Um, but yeah, it was just it was I would write a section, email it over to Michael. He would go through it and add a section. And then he would send that back to me. I'd go through his edits that he had on mine. I would go ahead and go through his, and then I would add a section. So as we continued on, there were certain sections that, you know, from the, at the very beginning, we were kind of going through, like, from the very beginning of the story all the way down to, but we started leaving, okay, we're going to move on from this beginning part. Let's go here. So as with each chapter, we just kind of kept building and building and building on it. Um, Cause knowing that, Hey, we're going to have to read all this stuff again anyway. So, you know, and originally it was a, it was a, it was a novella. It was very, it was basically coming clocked in around probably around 20,000 words. It was for a specific market. Uh, it did not make it into that market. Um, but we liked what we had. Uh, the beta readers liked it. And then we decided to expand it. So we we dumped a character. We made one. We had made two characters roles a lot bigger. And we added another character. And so that got it up to 30,000 words. And so we got some more beta readers involved. And uh, based upon their suggestions... And I'm really, really hard headed on a lot of things. Uh, there were some suggestions that I was totally against at first, uh, just adamantly, like it's not going to happen. And uh, after a couple of days of, of deep thinking, I realized that, hey, they're on the right track. We, we need to follow this lead. Hmm. And it made me realize that we we had not really neglected to do something, but we needed to do something to our protagonist. And so that's what basically ramps up the story. Um, 
you know, but it was, it was a hell of a lot of fun. You know, every project's different. Um, like my current work in progress right now, I'm not outlining at all mm. and I'm getting a lot of words on the page. I don't know if they're good or not because I'm just <laughs> going to keep going until I'm done and then I'll try to figure it all out later, but I just need to complete it. You know, that's, that's the goal. And so we, you know, but this, this particular project, because of all the twists and turns and things like that, uh, we wanted to definitely have an outline. And so we, we built up from there and there just comes a point when you just got to start writing it. And that's what we did. Yeah. Brendan, why don't you offer your thoughts first? Well, I, I was wondering when you say that you traded back and forth and wrote section by section, do you mean chapter or did you guys have kind of a set length or just fall into a pattern? It was more or less fall into a pattern and one chapter by chapter, um, we and we definitely made sure that we did not leave anyone hanging. We did not leave each other hanging. So if we ended a chapter, uh, it was and I guess more like a common courtesy. It's like, hey, I'm going to start the next chapter. So you know, I, my email would be, hey, ended chapter 13, started chapter 14. <laughs> Wait till you see where I left you at. You know, so and then we go from there. You know, and and we literally. Would we basically we wrote scenes? It was it, it's you know it because each chapter has probably at least if I, I don't know we never even counted up maybe at least one two two at least two scenes per chapter or a continuation of a scene or something like that. Um, so in I guess that kind of because we me and both. Michael are very visual writers. Uh, I think we did a good job of incorporating all the senses. Um, but I mean, in, in, in most stories, you know, it's, it's sound, you know, in, in, in your vision. So, you know, dialogue and what you see. And that's, that's where we are strongest at. And both me and Michael are really good at dialogue. And so we, and we knew it was going to be a dialogue heavy, you know, story. And, uh, so we, you know, that was, that was areas that we had a lot of confidence in. So it was, it was more or less scenes. We really, you know, as a chapter, I didn't, I don't think it would be fair to do like a whole chapter and like, okay, you have to do the next chapter. Well, what if he had an idea that he wanted to incorporate into that, you know, so he'd have to go in and, and change it. So it was more or less scenes, you know. There are certain scenes that I that I know in the in the narrative that we have now. I know I wrote those scenes, but for the most part, there there's a lot of scenes I can't remember. I, I can't I, I can't remember, and nor can I tell who wrote what. Hmm. Um. Ju- just one more question to piggyback on Brennan's. Did you guys edit for your first draft? Like during your first draft, did you? Is that when you started editing each other's works? Yes. Oh wow. In the yeah, in the first draft, we were already editing. Um, I edit even in my own stuff. Um, I kind of edit as I go. Mm. Uh, and the reason why is, um, because a lot of people do that and it's something I learned and it gets you back into the flow. Uh, you know, um, if you're, if you don't know where you're going in your story, uh, or you feel a little trepidation about getting into it area, go back over to section before you'll find something wrong. Hmm. 
Mm. Doesn't matter if it's a typo, mis, misplaced word, misused word. Mm-hmm. Oh, and you're like, oh, yeah, and hold on. I used that word twice in the same paragraph. Okay. <laughs> and, and so, you know, you and you start, you start tinkering with it. And next thing you know, you're down to where you left off and you can continue on. And, you know, that's. And something that Joe Lansdale talks about all the time, he edits as he goes. Mm. He learned that because he started writing on a typewriter, you know, finger punching one finger at a time. And so it's kind of like, uh, and Elmer Leonard was the same way. Uh, he would write, and if the pay, if he made one mistake on that typewriter, he would take the page out and start a fresh page and type it till that page was complete. Good God. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Sounds That's expensive. How, that's how they wrote. That's how they <laughs> yeah. wrote back then, man. You know, so uh, they edit as you go. And that's, you know, but I mean, that, that it's not like that. That's a final edit. Mm. That's a that's a rough draft edit. Right. You gotta, once you get done, you got to go and you check for, you know, consistency, continuity, stuff like that. I like the uh, amount of kind of care for your co-author you guys put in there, uh, both kind of taking into consideration that you, um, you know, you don't kind of own a scene that the other person gets input on that, but also, you know, not leaving them in that tenuous, you know, I have this character dangling literally off the edge of a cliff. Let's see (laughs) how you figure that out, man. Um, I, I've said before that my two favorite things about the, the writing in this book are, I love the pacing, Uh, I found that there was just not a good place to put it down. Um, And the sense of unease that that you guys built, um, where you never quite are sure where you're going next. And if you think you know, there's a fair chance that you're mistaken. Um, And a lot of that is that, again, no pun intended, fish out of water, um, the person in a new in a new place. so speaking of that, I, I wonder what was it like for you trying to write about a place you're going to be unfamiliar with, whether it's the, the dialogue, the lingo, um, how, how much, um, how many, how much did you have to ask about, you know, what, what words to use and what, what words to stay away from? Well, as far as setting goes, it was fairly easy because where I live, I live about an hour away from the beach. And so I've spent a lot of time on the coast and stuff like that. I'm I'm more or less, excuse me, I'm more or less, I guess what you call like a beach bum and not a a woodsy type guy. I've seen uh, the Butter Witch too many times and you can't get me (laughs) to go camping. Uh, If if you do and you try to play a prank on me and you build like a wooden teepee, I'm going to stick it up your nose. So uh, (laughs) and then I'm going to be in the truck for the rest of the trip. Then then you're going to be shamed. Um, But, yeah, so I'm a beach guy. So I knew I knew the coast. I knew and I've seen, you know, these areas. So that was easy. It was, you know, coming right riding. I wrote it the way that, that I wanted to, the way I envisioned it in my head. Since we set it in England, fortunately, I had Michael there to to correct my my evil ways. Um, you Stupid know, Americans. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> you know, hobo wanker. But anyway, uh, <laughs> he uh, <laughs> knows. He he like we you know we have a car trunk. They have a car boot. 
Uh, we have a shopping cart. They have a shopping trolley. You know, so it's, you know, it's, it's, they have curious words for the uh, normal words, you know, <laughs> but, uh, it, it's, it's words that, that Brian wouldn't say. He wouldn't say, you know, I grabbed the shopping cart. Uh, that's, it's actually used for something else. He wouldn't call it a trunk of a car. He called it the boot of the car, mm. you know? So, I mean, it's like, it was just little, little bitty things like that. Uh, and, uh, you know, I trusted, I trusted his judgment on it, you know, because he, you know, he, he, he grew up in England. He, I guess he, he kind of knows, you know, <laughs> so it wasn't, it wasn't very hard. Um, you know, and there were some things that, that he wrote that were like way too British. <laughs> it was like, that's, that's, that's not going to fly. Um, he didn't understand. There was one section and I'm not really spoiling anything by saying this, but he, he questioned how, low a door was how close the a door the bottom of door was to the floor of a room and he's and so yeah i know you i just seen you on your camera you looked yeah it's like an inch right yeah it's about anywhere from from i guess a, a half inch to to almost a whole inch because you could have carpet leading up to the door you mm-hmm. could have uh, crown molding around the edge of the door, you know, and and so and, and Michael's like, well, in England, you know, it's basically it's less than half an inch. I'm like, okay, but you also got to keep in mind that if you got hardwood floors and you built in a house, if your house is on piers, the house is going to settle, <laughs> then you end up with a stuck door. <laughs> He's like, how's that happen? <laughs> you know, and I'm like, well, because maybe it doesn't happen in England, but I mean, it happens in the United States. I said, but I think a half an inch is good, <laughs> you know. So I mean, that those were type of things that we, we went, went back and forth on. It was like little technical details, um, you know. Yes, I did imagine myself tied to a chair. So um, <laughs> you know, uh, it was almost at the point to where I was ready to have uh, my roommate actually tie me to a chair, but I didn't go that far. <laughs> just just to see, it's like you know, hey, then you know. But then, of course, it had been like, hey, man, you broke my chair, <laughs> you know, so, yeah, yes, I did, you know, but we some of the things that we went back and forth on were it, it's amazing, but it, they're extremely important. You wouldn't think they would be, but it's things that a reader would go, whoa, that doesn't fly, you know, and we wanted to make sure that there was no way we were going to take the reader out of the story. It's kind of like uh, you know a movie or a video game. If you're playing it and you don't notice anything, background-wise, music, sound effects, whatever, that's good on the part of the person that did the technical stuff. But just like you said, if you don't have anything that jive, if you got if you got something that doesn't jive with the flow of everything, you're gonna notice it. So yeah, they are crucial to nail those facts. Mm-hmm. Um. I just wanted to say the ending, I uh, won't spoil it, but the ending did throw me off. Didn't expect it, really loved it. I'm um, curious how the majority of people are going to take it. Uh, I feel like you and Michael may be in that same camp too, but Brennan, what what are your vague thoughts on that, the uh, ending? What are my vague thoughts on the ending? I, I would... I would echo you. I, I kind of turned that last little bit and I said, well, I didn't really expect we were going there. Um, but 
like I said, I I kind of felt like one thing this really did for me, and it's one of the reasons I enjoyed it so much, is it kept me off kilter the entire time. Yeah. Um, and that even, you know, applies to the last page. Um, you just, you, you kind of never really know what's, what exactly is going on, how much you can trust of, you know, what you see and what you're told, uh, how much you can rely on different characters and the validity of what they're saying. Um, There's just, to me, the whole atmosphere of it um, is just kind of this one of of mistrust, I guess. Um, And I thought that was awesome. Uh, You don't get to settle into it. Um, and it's the perfect length for it. It's, uh, Michael picked on me because I thought it was a novella. He said that word count takes it up into novel range. So I won't make that mistake again. Well, <laughs> I, I, I question that and I know he's good at his knowing his stuff, but I've, I've always thought it was 50,000 is the low, uh, is the low point for novels. See, my, my excuse was I read it on Kindle and you know, so I knew what percentage <laughs> I was at. I don't know what freaking page I'm on. Um, <laughs> But I thought it was the perfect length to pull that off because that could, uh, in a in a longer longer form work, I I think that could be a little too much. But for that long novella slash short novel, um, <laughs> keeping the reader kind of on their toes and unsure of what's going on for the entire thing, first of all, can't be easy. But second of all, it it's it's an accomplishment. It's it's. You know, I, I can't really think off the top of my head of another novel that I could, or novella that I could compare that to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that, uh, and I appreciate that. And it it is it is a short novel. It it's all depending on on which criteria you look at. Mm. But uh, I think the modern criteria now, and this all comes from publishers. I mean, here's the thing: a story's a story's a story, right? Right. Um, it's, you know, it, it, basically the market is going to dictate, you know, what, what they're going to call it. Mm. And so based upon that, those concerns, the market has the cutoff point around 40,000 words. Anything above that is considered a novel. So it may not be a long novel, but it's, it's a, it's a, you know, what we call a short novel, Mm. you know, fight club is barely a novel. So that's the way, you know, Mojo Rising could have been a novel. <laughs> you know, if I'd, if I'd had another, uh, probably another 10,000 words to it, uh, I didn't think it needed it. I was happy with novella. Mm. Um, I'm happy with a short novel because I know, you know, readers' attention spans. Compared to my next work, which, I mean, it's probably going to push about 90,000. Mm. Okay. So, you know, that's going to be, that's going to be, that's going to be my magnum opus. So <laughs> my big epic, it's probably not, it's probably going to cut down to about 75, which is pretty good for a novel, <laughs> but you know. You said that in the same breath. It's got to be my magnum opus, kidding. <laughs> that's funny though that you mentioned that. Cause I, you know, I, I would definitely have that thought if I have a book that like, if I have a, a, a book in the last year or so that somebody sends me and it's around that 190 page mark, I'm almost kind of teetering on saying, Oh, it's, it's a novella, but you're right. It's a short novel. And like, I've got fight club right in front of me. I've never ever considered whether or not that's novel length. Um, so but you always considered it a novel. Yeah, exactly. Too. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so you're right. Market, 
market. And, you know, typically you wouldn't, unless you're Stephen King, you wouldn't get your novella published with a hardcover. So, I mean, there's that too. Um, now yeah, that's, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. I want to, I want to, I want to hit on something because, and, and this is, this is, I guess, important and I'm trying to do it without spoilers, but the ending, did it, did it feel like it was coming out of left field? Or did it just be, was it just a direction that you're, you're thinking back? You're like, oh, they did kind of set this up, but we but didn't speak, think we were going to go there. That, that's you took the words out of my mouth. That's I didn't think it would go there. I didn't think it would go there. It came out of left field in the sense where it surprised me. It makes sense because the whole time, I don't know if I can trust the narrator. I don't know if I can trust his sister. The girl in the video. I mean, the girl next door in the room. <laughs> yeah, the girl in the uh, video. Yeah. yeah. It, felt, it felt like you can't trust her that. either, man. No. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, think about it, though, not spoiling anything. There is a girl in the video later on. Okay. They're one and the same. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's two things. That I, that I insist upon. It has to be logical and has to be unpredictable um, because that that's what I look for in stories. If I can figure it out, then you you really got to bring it home on me. Mm. You know, there's this thing called dramatic irony. And what that is, is like when you know, your reader knows something that the characters does not know. This is not one of those stories because we kept everything hidden from you based upon POV. And so it's all point of view. If I if we were to switch POV POV to to at least one character, then you would have never known. It would have taken a totally. I mean, you would have known everything that Brian didn't know. So we we couldn't do that. It was you know it didn't it didn't work for the story. But like you know you got a novel like uh, you know like Daniel Krause's uh, Bent Heavens that if you do manage to figure it out. You know something that the characters don't know, and as the story progresses, it gets worse for the characters <laughs> because you're just like I. Once you, you know, and Michael read out, I kept badgering him. I said, "Man, you got to read this book. You got to read this Ben Heavens," and he he didn't figure it out. I figured it out early, and it just made it worse for me. But if Michael almost had the same thing when he figured, when he finally hit that point, and he and he he emailed me and he was like, "Oh shit." <laughs> you know, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know where you're at. He's like, this book just went up a whole new level. <laughs> I really have enjoyed read it. No, I have not read that one, but I really enjoyed the conversation you guys had with Daniel Krause. And <laughs> uh, like many horror fans, George A. Romero, he's been pretty much an idol. Him, it, it's a weird com- two guys, but him and Kevin Smith, for me, as a storyteller, as filmmakers – as writers, mm-hmm. they're my two top uh, that I have loved since I've been a little kid. And to hear the guy that's written the book with Romero, I'm just – I was eating it up. It was mm-hmm. fantastic. Oh, Daniel, yeah. seems, Daniel seems like a real nice guy too. Mm-hmm. And well, he does – thing. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say Andy does something that I don't do with the – two books i'm in anthologies now i did in the beginning but i'm not anymore i hope i continue doing what he does whenever i get a novel published don't read the fucking comments don't mm-hmm. read the reviews unless it's like you know a friend that 
pot tags you. I, I just I think that that's a good way to protect your mental health. Whether it's a good com- <laughs> seriously, whether it's a good comment or bad, uh, how's that going to change how I write my next book? I don't want it to. I, when it comes to reviews, I kind of take what Lord Baron has said about reviews. If you're going to really, really like the five star reviews, you need to pay attention also to the one star reviews. Yeah. <laughs> so you got to put them all in the same category. That could That's be a valid. headache. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was going to say just one last thing on the whole idea of uh, uh, trust. Um, I know that Ted was not in the original 20,000 word version that you guys mm-hmm. put together. Mm-hmm. And to me, I like that surprises the hell out of me because he felt like the hinge. Like if I can figure out this character's motivations, then everything else drops into place for me. If I can figure out whether this character is on the level and can be trusted, that's going to give me some solid ground to stand on. Um, at least that's the way I kind of looked at it. Mm-hmm. The way, yeah, the way that the novella plays out, if you can imagine um, at the point where Brian realizes that someone else is watching and, uh, and then he, and then he follows that person. And then if you take out all of Ted and then add back in the end. That's that's that was the the novella, basically. Mm-hmm. So Ted Ted was a game changer. Yeah. He he, yeah. he amped it up. <clears throat> and it's crazy. His name was originally Ted, and it got somehow it got changed to Bill. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and then uh, uh, okay, and we and we had him with Bill forever, man. It was Brian and Bill, you know. And, and some one of the beta readers said, "Don't you think that that's like just too many bees?" And we decided to change it back. And you know, and it was weird because Michael's like, he goes, "I want to call him Ted." And I was like, "Ted?" He goes, "That was his original name because we've been calling him Bill for so long." And I was <laughs> like, "Oh yeah, it is," <laughs> you know. But yeah, Ted is is actually Michael's. Uh, that he he come up with that character, and he was a lot of fun to write. You know, he was a lot of fun to write. Uh, <clears throat> fun to read too. Oh yeah, mm. he was fun. He was. He's Ted's a trip, and and even even though I know he's not necessarily from England, it, there's like I I picture, um uh, oh what's his name? He's in the boys. I he played it. he played Dread, and he played oh, Judge Carl Dredd. Urban. Huh? Yeah, Carl Urban. His name. I see him as Ted. You know, you can, can write some other that. stories yeah. with him. Ted, Ted's the kind of the character where you could have a whole series. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Given there, what there, he does for a living. A way, there's a way it could be done. Yeah. There's a way it could be done. Well put. Now, one thing I would like to say on their watching um, is, and I know you're going to know what I'm talking about, but just to preface it, um, so I told Michael first after I finished reading it, I talked to him before you and I said that it reminded me of a few things. Um, and I won't say why, uh, with most of them, but one thing was midnight uh, on the meat train, um, for ending reasons in the realm of that mm-hmm. story. 
another one was uh, Hot Fuzz for an England small village. I, maybe it's not a small village, but that's how I read it as American that's never been to England. Mm-hmm. And the type of denizens that live there, it just felt like a like a serious, dramatic version of Hot Fuzz. Um, mm-hmm. And and I love that movie, so I only mean that as a very big compliment. Uh, now, I know your feelings on Hot Fuzz before when it first came out. I know that you watched it recently because you just posted about that. Now, yeah. is that going to be something where you're like rolling your eyes if you keep getting that comparison? No, no, I won't. Um, I mean, I, I, it would be as though it, as if, if an angel were Brian and Ted mixed together, hmm. that would that would make a lot of sense. You see oh. what I'm saying? Huh. I never okay, really thought of that. He's, he's, he's both Brian. He's a fish yeah. out of water. Yeah, and he's yeah. both Ted. He's a hard-ass cop. Right. Okay? So, yeah, that's that's the impression I, that I got. Uh, the town, there, there's some aspect of, of, of that town and the way it's ran that kind of falls in there and it's it's crazy because michael's he's seen hot fuzz i haven't really seen it till the other night and this is after the book was written and he had never he had never seen body double Mm. and so we wrote this book and i said dude you, you you have to to watch body double because it is it is a major influence on here and when we were coming up with the synopsis and, and the tagline, we had, you know, we wanted to, to create some visuals. And he finally watched Body Double, and he was like, holy shit. And he goes, dude, it's like there's there's so many parallels. It's crazy. <laughs> I've actually never seen that, so I'm not going to act like I did. Um, now, I will tell you this, that you got to keep an open mind if you watch Body Double. Uh, Brennan, have you ever seen it? I have not, no. No. Uh, this is a movie that Brian De Palma made uh, after he got into an argument uh, about getting uh, almost getting X rating on Scarface. Yeah, yeah, for the shower scene, which is horseshit. Yeah, so he, he almost got an X rating on that. And so and Brian De Palma made basically Body Double was the Hold My Beer movie. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, it is, I'm being perfectly honest with you, it is misogynistic, it is fucking problematic as fuck. You need to know that going in, okay? But it will also, it will also seriously fuck you up. Hmm. In, in a good way. When you get done, you'll be like, that was actually pretty damn good. That's, but, uh, <laughs> it's kind of like that Chuck Palahniuk, uh, quote, when I heard him talking with Michael, where, uh, uh Basically, any time, which I recommend to anyone listening to this, check out that interview. It was, it was really informative as a writer, uh, as a reader, I imagine, too. But um, he said that whenever someone has an issue with a scene that is questioned, basically, he says, um, I'm going to turn it up a few notches. And I like that approach myself. Yeah, it's, it's Chuck allowed me to... to I guess conquer some fears I had on writing mm. and, you know, and to, to write fearlessly. And, but I also combined that with something that Colson Whitehead said and Colson Whitehead does, does did a talk 
and one of his his best quotes that he did was especially when it concerns if you if you, you're taking on the pov of the other so this makes a lot of sense you can write whatever you want to write about just don't fuck it up and it and so if you're if you're a white person mm-hmm. and you want to write from the pov of a black person as long as you're not claiming that that is the black experience right because you don't have authority to speak to that way no as long as you don't fuck it up you've pretty much got his permission this is how we 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 write different characters you know and so that that's real important and to be able to write fearlessly you need to, to have that kind of you know that that kind of attitude going in, and to make sure that I that I do this respectfully, and don't fuck it up. <laughs> you know, so yeah, I, I love that quote. It really irks me when people, um, you know, and I got no one specifically in mind, but when you get advice saying that, like, if you're insert whatever ge- John uh, gender, sex, race, whatever, you can't write this. You can't write from this. It, that's how you learn. That's how as long as you. Do your proper research, I would suggest, with certain things, and you do it like you said respectfully. Talk to people, you know. Yeah, like it's I, funny. Me, yeah. Like me myself, like I, I got this horror that I want to kind of build in the Wampanoaga um, history. Um, the first, the Indians that um, met the Pilgrims for the first Thanksgiving. Like I got a lot of research to do because I know some stuff, but I got a lot more to learn. So that's the approach you take, you know, you got to do it and ask the right people too would be, I would think the best way. Right. Sensitive readers um, that know what they're talking about. Oh yeah, but, definitely. I mean, and, and you know, the thing is, is that people are always going to criticize everything, anything, whatever they can find. And you got to realize that the same people that will sit there and tell you that you can't do something are the same people that are going to get pissed off when your entire cast is white males. Think Agreed. about that. Agree, absolutely. You know, it's like if you write if you wrote the thing today, yeah. <laughs> you know, and no women, just a bunch of bunch of bunch of guys. Well, there there, there were no women then. You know, they would yeah. criticize that. You know, yeah. of course there were. You know, so I th- and I think that's one of the things that the prequel did good. It was probably the only thing is, is they had a little bit more diverse cast, right. <laughs> you know, but other than that, the prequel sucked. <laughs> so <laughs> I love those pieces of writing advice because I'm, I'm, I've been sitting here playing almost mental gymnastics with them for the last two minutes. And at first glance, you know, write fearlessly and don't fuck it up uh, seem to be at odds with each other. But if you kind of combine them into, you know, one uh, I'm going to say catch all. I don't know if I agree with that way of phrasing it, but it's, it, it works. You know, it's like you need both of them to create something that's going to be unique. That's going to have, you know, um, your, that's going to tell the story that you want to tell, mm-hmm. you know, if you, and, and that's going to do it in a way that people are going to want to read it and not just say, Oh, that's all white males. I don't want to read that. Throw it out. Um, but, yeah, yeah. I, I, I that's something I'm going to think about a little bit more. Um so Bob, we've taken up a lot of your night. It's really late here, which means it's mm-hmm. 
pretty late there. Um, <laughs> yeah. But before, but before we let you go, um, is there anything you're reading right now or have been reading in, you know, October that you'd like to share with people? Um, what I'm reading right now is I'm reading, uh, I'm reading Dear Laura by Gemma Amore. And uh, I'm going to probably finish this in a couple of days. It's a novella. And uh, wow, it's uh, it's pretty it's pretty dark. And uh, this is uh, and I think I'm going to I got White Pines. I think I'm going to read that next. Um, other than that, I've been reading a lot, reading a lot of Peter Straub, <laughs> uh, <laughs> mainly because uh, my, my work in progress, if it wasn't for the throat, uh then I probably wouldn't have a work in progress. There's, there's a, and there's a lot of things I could say about my work in progress. It's like, if it wasn't for Mothman, there wouldn't be a work in progress, but yeah, you know, it's, uh, so that's, I've been reading a lot of that, but I'm trying to think of the, the last book that really wowed me was probably the, the sundown motel by Simone St. James. I think, um, that knocked my socks off. That was awesome. Uh, highly, highly recommended. It. Uh, it's worth it's worth the money, and if you get it on a if you get it on a book bub for two three bucks, you need to snag that one. It's a good one. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Who does Hunter book Sh- bub? <laughs> Hunter Shea was talking about Mothman. Uh, guy loves his cryptids. Yeah, that's uh, Mothman is a uh, is really cool. Mm. <laughs> that's what I'm gonna say about that. I've that's, only seen the movie. You haven't seen it. No, I've only seen the movie. Oh, you've not read the, the I haven't read the book. The book's a lot different than the movie mm-hmm. because the book is more of a nonfiction account that John Keel, you know, what happened whenever he went on that that trip. Right. The movie has got a lot more dramatic points mm-hmm. to it, uh, and some things that actually didn't happen. Uh, but I mean, it kind of captures the spirit of it. But there's some really creepy shit in that movie, mm-hmm. and uh, and of course, you know, Richard Gere. You know he's good, but you know the to me the highlight were the scenes with Will Patton because Will Patton can do no wrong. He is one of my favorite actors, uh, very underrated, and and he just he, he the scenes he's in he chews up scenery and knocks it out of the park. Hmm. I really like how you managed to tell us what you were reading and get me excited about your work in progress all in one swing. <laughs> very nice job there. <laughs> That's um, what I do. <laughs> I, and, and I loved Dear Laura. I thought that was a fantastic book. I'm midway through White Pines right now, but uh, Dear Laura was that was really something. That that was a book that stuck with me uh, long after I finished it. Yeah, I, I I know, and it's like I'm I'm seeing my progress, and I'm like, man, I feel like I'm at thirty percent. I'm like, oh my god, oh my god. I mean, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna, and every time I read it, I'm like, now I'm at forty percent, you know, and I'm like, oh man this is going to come to an end like really quick and it's probably going to just knock the shit out of me, <sighs> you know? And so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah. I mean, we talked earlier about what you, you know, the novella versus short novel versus novel and all that. Like that's to, to me, that's one of the better examples I've read in the last year of what you can do, what you can pull off with a novella. Um, how much story you can get in there and with the right pacing and the right ability to tell a story, which Gemma has in spades, um, just what you can accomplish in that short time. Patrick, what are you reading, man? Right now I'm reading Tim Wagner's, uh, is that how you say it? Cause I heard Hunter Shea say Wagner. Is it Wagner or Wagner? 
I'm thinking it's Wagner. Okay. So, thank you. I'm reading Tim Wagner's uh, writing in the dark. It's uh, it's it's got. I feel like it's gonna be the go-to book for writing uh, horror. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really all I gotta say for that right now because we're gonna be talking to him next week. So I want to save what I can say to him. <laughs> it's later. a good book. It's a good book. I read it. Yeah. <laughs> How yeah, about you, Brian? Well, that, uh, Brennan, what are you reading? That that was a really good one. I'm I'm like maybe. 90% through it right now. So I guess I can't technically say was, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I think another, you know, 20 pages and I'll be able to say was, um, I just started, we were talking about broken river books earlier. I just started coyote songs by mm. Gabino Iglesias and I three chapters in, I am hooked. Um, mm-hmm. I knew going in that it was a mosaic novel. So I'm like really taking my time with it, paying attention. I want to see how it kind of, how the puzzle pieces fit together, you know, mm-hmm. and see see how they kind of come together to tell that larger story. Um, but man, that first chapter really got my attention. <laughs> um, I think I'm going to enjoy this one. I've seen uh, Gabino read from that book uh, prior to its publication at KillerCon in person. And if you ever get a chance to see him read in person, uh it is uh it's very passionate you you will you will thoroughly enjoy it um and he doesn't he doesn't hold back he's not going to explain the the spanglish at all <laughs> and it's and it's beautiful coming from his mouth it's just you know and he, i didn't understand half the words and i was just like oh wow this is going to be something and i really enjoyed it and he he is something else he is really something else he is an exciting personality that's one thing i noticed too the uh, you know the mix of the spanish with the english is there are some parts where you'll see a character kind of uh paraphrase their own phrase so you you kind of know what they're talking about but not every time uh you're right it doesn't you know there are definitely some you have to either uh keep a dictionary on hand for or use context clues to figure out what's going on or remember your high school spanish but that's that's but it far doesn't, down the list. <laughs> it doesn't take it away from it, even if you don't understand it. it mm. It's, um, and I, I'm a firm believer that there there are works of fiction that that you can read that there are parts of that you don't understand that even the author doesn't understand. Uh, case in point, read Brian Evanson <laughs> and listen <laughs> listen to our interview with him because <laughs> I asked him that, and he's he's kind of like, yeah, a lot of that stuff I'm just trying to figure out myself, and I don't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that's you know to me it doesn't take away from it it's it's part of the beauty it's part of the art that's no, like and life. it's very it's very authentic too yeah mm-hmm. so um where can people follow you where can people follow your podcast well you know we are on uh the uh website uh you know it's this is hard.co.uk Definitely not .ko. I don't know where that goes to. I have no idea. Uh, Girls and videos. <laughs> probably. <laughs> <laughs> the girl in the video, he probably might. Michael's probably like, I got it going to that page. <laughs> so anyway. And it's really <laughs> Max Booth in a Hello Kitty mask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Well, Josh Mallerman films it. That's my joke. Sorry. I <laughs> that makes so much sense. What a lacked in quality it made up for. <laughs> It, it what you just like kind of lagged oh, up there. I, I said what it, what your joke lacked in quality it made up for in length. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> 
And on Twitter, you can find me at uh, at Bob Pastorella. That's probably the easiest place to, to find me. Um, I'm on Facebook. I will not accept your friend request there. <laughs> Just letting you know, I'm I'm pretty much uh, it's a it's a promotional tool that's not working out very well. So um, <laughs> I have friends that are on Facebook that are not on Twitter. I miss them, so I will lurk a little bit. Uh, which is bad because if I do comment, it's almost invariably I will deactivate again. So they'll be like trying to, to like my comment or something like that. And they can't. <laughs> so um, if I do get on there, I try to stay on there for like a day or two, but then you'll see that I'm gone. Uh, <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> it's like, well, he was here Drifter. and now he's not here. Right. But Twitter is, I get so much more engagement there. It's a lot more fun, yeah. I think. And, uh, you know, follow me. Follow me. Doesn't mean I'll follow you back, but follow me. <laughs> Brennan, any final words? Any thoughts? Uh, no. You know, I, I, I thought about asking you to address the rumor of whether Michael David Wilson was, in fact, a real person or some sort of <laughs> deep fake, but I'm not sure that's fair to put you in that position. I thought about asking you to address the rumor that you'll be fighting Laurel Hightower at some <laughs> point, but I, I don't, you know... I. I don't want to, you know, put you on the spot. I, I don't even know what the hell that's all about. I mean, <laughs> I, and, and here's the thing. I'm sure Laurel probably doesn't either. Uh, you know, uh, I think that we're going to be, me and Mike are going to be on their show coming up like real soon. Like when I think the weekend. Oh, so, uh, yeah. So they're, they're all kind of gearing up for some kind of stupid wrestling thing you know and it's like and i think in, in one of the social media comments i said this is pretty much like any i'm like andy kaufman uh i'm not going to be a very good wrestler you know <laughs> so i'm just that's just not my it's not my thing but i know it's gonna probably be a lot of fun and that's probably going to come up but um yeah i think i think michael is i think it uh it's amazing what technology can do with deep fakes, you know, just leave it at that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Bob, any final thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> any final thoughts? I want everybody to, to, uh, you know, get, get, they're watching. It's coming out, uh, Halloween, October 31st. It's available for pre-order. There's links on the website. If you go to, uh, you know, this is hard.co.uk. Uh, you can find the article there. Uh, with the links, it's on Amazon on the ebook. Um, me and Michael put a lot of work into it, and I think you're really, really going to enjoy it. I hope you do. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited for it to be out in the wild. I mean, you know, like I'm, I'm, it's two weeks away, and I'm getting the butterflies already. So that's, that's, and I love that feeling. Uh, and this is the first uh, thing that I've had out uh, since uh, my story in Lost Films. So, and you know. It's kind of like, hey, um, um, I've, I've been away, but I'm coming back, you know. So I got that kind of nervousness too. And um, but yeah, if it wasn't for for their watching, um, it really kind of got me back into writing, especially this last little bit where we, you know, really kind of ramped it back up. Because uh, I went like basically almost a whole year without doing anything, and that sucked. I watched a lot of lots of played a lot of games and watched a lot of movies though. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know me and brennan highly recommend they're watching both read it loved it uh check them out at this is horror on twitter that is their username also you can check in the uh was it the episode notes for the link for the pre-order but 
the day this comes out, uh, it will be available one day from now. This will be October 30th. Uh, Bob, thank you for talking to us for nearly two and a half hours. Uh, Brennan, thank you for being here as always. I appreciate you. Listeners, appreciate you listening and uh, hopefully spreading the word. You can follow us at dead underscore headspace on Twitter. That is the best place to reach us. We are in your mind. We are all around. You are now leading.